Hello and welcome to the Diageo Bar Academy podcast, Bar Chat. Join me, your host, Tristan Stevenson, as I chat to some of the biggest and best names in the industry on a whole range of bar-related topics. From the finer details of spirits and cocktails to the latest global trends, we hope you're inspired by the variety of episodes available. Welcome to this episode of Bar Chat. I am joined here in the studio by Declan McGurk, who is bar's director of the Savoy Hotel right here in London. And very much not here in London, we've also got Sean Finter, who is broadcasting across the Atlantic to us, uh, the founder and CEO of Bar Metrics. Welcome, gentlemen. Thank you. Thank you for having us. It's my absolute pleasure. Now, we are here today um, to talk a little bit about the business of bars, talking about how, uh, as managers, operators, bartenders, anyone that works in the hospitality industry can look to increase profits and impress their customers. I know that you two are really well-placed to kind of talk to us a little bit about this, give us some really good tips on this subject, um, because you've got a wealth of experience between you, and we're going to get into that. So, um, perhaps starting with you, Declan, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself, how you came to be working at one of the world's best bars, which is a pretty nifty gig, um, and tell us a little bit about your experience. Yeah, so to try and condense it down, uh, you wouldn't believe looking at my youthful features, but I've been working in the industry since 1999, Uh, spent a long, long time working up in Leeds, got into the management side of bars very, very early. Um, and uh, developed myself as a, as a group bars development manager for a company called Arc Inspirations. And then moving sooner to today, seven years ago, I started first of all as the bar manager of the American Bar, um, and I did that role for five and a half years. And then a year and a half ago, I started to increase in my capacity. Uh, so these days, I'm the director of bars looking after both the American and Beaufort Bar at the Savoy, uh, with then dotted lines as well to our bar in Simpsons and uh, a bit of interaction as well with our events business. And um, I mean, American Bar is just one of the most iconic bars on the planet. If I'd not... maybe argue it is the most, Tristan. Come on, well, stop you, talking you me down, eh? You would, <laughs> you? Um, I mean, just an incredible bar, amazing history, like some of the best-known bartenders of all time gone through it. Many classic cocktails created there. Of course, the Savoy Cocktail Book, which I actually have tattooed on my arm. <laughs> <laughs> I should get free drinks in the American bar for that, I think. Like, can I get free drinks? You quite often do. (laughs) Fair point, fair point. Um, Okay, and Sean, um, over to you. Tell us a little bit about your background. Yeah, sure. I um, I grew up in Canada in a a small town and started in the industry in 85 uh, when I was 12. Worked at a, a truck stop as a dishwasher, a job that really changed my life. I kind of found my place after struggling in school and and um, went from there to being a waiter and then a bartender, um, moved to the city of Toronto, got an opportunity to open my eyes to you know what was available in the industry and got into management, which took me to London, um, learned to uh, manage uh, busy properties, multi-site properties, and uh, worked my way into a small consulting firm, uh, which allowed me to travel the world through the industry, which I always tell kids, like, what a wonderful industry, you know, to, to get to. I've been to uh, over 40 countries because of the industry. And when I landed in Australia, I decided that I wanted to stay um, in that country for an extended period of time. And uh, that's when I became an owner and uh, developed a small group in Sydney of eight properties, which I had for, uh, for about six years. And when I sold that group, I, uh, I was exhausted. I was very unhealthy, uh, physically and mentally, and um, decided that I wanted to teach people all the things that worked and warn them against the things that didn't. And um, that turned into uh, my own consulting firm, which you know I had high aspirations of 100 clients. And um, you know, 20 years later, we've served over 7,000 teams, and we're in eight countries around the world. So that's Barmetrics, and that's where I am today at the headquarters in Annapolis, Maryland. Fantastic. That's amazing. Um, so, look, we, there's obviously a lot we can learn from both of you, um, me included, because, you know, I own a few bars, a restaurant as well. And I'm about 10 years into this owner operator game and well aware that every single day is a learning day. I still make many, many mistakes, um, which, of course, you learn from uh, and uh, the hard way. 
And still I'm surprised about the kind of problems that I encounter and how we go about overcoming them. And so I really want to get into some of that. Um, it's an interesting thing to me that in our industry, a lot of the bar owners and operators that I know um, never sort of planned to get into the business game. They started out as bartenders or as waiters or as chefs or whatever. And then one day found themselves with a set of keys to a property and going in there and suddenly the entire dynamic changes for them. They're no longer someone who's just busting out the cocktails they like to make and, you know, being that creative or whether it's, you know, chef or bartender, um, chef, obviously, in case in the case of restaurants. And suddenly they've got, you know, a team to look after. They've got bills they need to pay. You know, they've got landlords they need to be on the right side of, all of this sort of thing. How can a bar manager turned entrepreneur go about equipping themselves with all the know-how they need to create a healthy business? Well, you know, it is a unique industry that way. And then you, you meet, I meet uh, in my daily work, uh, hundreds of people every year that are running multi-million dollar businesses and uh, they've never had any formal training in that. You know, they kind of came up in the industry and, um, you know, my first management job was was given to me because I I worked hard. Uh, I could stay sober. I didn't lose the keys. Um, you know, there wasn't a lot of criteria for it. I, and I, I worked hard to, to do a good job at it. But um, getting getting ready for management, if I had to do it again and, and go back, I now know there's only two types of organizations. There's those that invest in their staff to learn and progress and those that don't, right? And it's pretty obvious if you work in a place for a week, you'd know the difference. Um, so I definitely choose a venue that was investing in the people that work there. Um, secondly, I would um, do what I always did and take on way more responsibility than, than I was qualified for and, uh, and work like hell to, to, to make sure that I, I came good on my promises. And when I failed, you know, got, got the help I needed to, to recover. And then now more than ever, you know, and it increases every year, the amount of information that's available for free uh, is overwhelming. You know, the internet's just full of incredible um, podcasts and courses and, and so forth. Um, but I'd always couple that with a mentor and, and find somebody who you want to be like uh, and, and achieve the success that they're currently having. And uh, you combine those things together. And, um, you know, for me, it was uh, a four-year journey to, from deciding as a, as a manager to um, keys to my own property. And, and, you know, a lot of kids go to college for four years, and at the end of it, they just have a, a bucket load of debt. I had enough knowledge and maybe, uh, maybe enough guts to take on a place of my own, but it's, uh, it's, it's possible for everybody. It is uh, something, though, that I don't know. You know, I'm, I'm not that old. I'm 37. However, if, it, if at the age of 37 I was really considering opening my first bar now, like not knowing what I do know now, I still don't think I would actually go ahead and do it. It's because I was 25, 26 when I first did it and so enthusiastic and energetic and ambitious that, and probably foolish that I, I guess I kind of took that plunge and really kind of just threw, threw, threw caution to the wind and thought, you know what, I can do this. And I remember when we first, my, my first bar, Pearl, right here in London 10 years ago it opened almost to the day actually it was it's nearly exactly 10 years since it opened um we you know we we were we were in there painting decorating knocking down walls tiling floors we built the back bar so we, apart from electricians we didn't bring in any outside contractors because we didn't have any money um and we knew we just needed to get this place open and start trading we did very little market research. We didn't. We just knew we wanted to make nice drinks, and, and we knew the kind of environment we wanted to offer our guests. But it was so foolish. Like we we really went into it very unprepared, and it was only really through a lot of luck, mostly to do with timing. I think you know, it was a good good time in London to actually open the kind of bar we opened, which was sort of along the speakeasy vibe. Um, and, and the fact that we, we were good bartenders and we knew that we could serve great drinks and we were pretty hospitable, that it, we actually made it work. Um, because I know from experience, having opened subsequent bars, you know, they, they don't always work out like that. You know, sometimes things go awry and you can plan all you like and probably better prepared than we were with the first one. And yet still things can fall apart and you don't get the trade or the customers or 
for whatever the reason, the profitability that you, you expected. Um, anyway, that's enough about me. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I just, I'm just going to say that, you know, I was 26, so only a year older than you were. And, and it's true. You don't know what you don't know at that age. But if, you know, you do know, if you've got a, a gift, a collective gift as a team that you can, you can go, like, uh, like yourself, I found that you can figure out uh, an awful lot on the fly if you've got youth and energy and, mm. and some momentum. Mm. And, and the industry is pretty forgiving, you know, for, for those that, that put their heart out there and, and, and are giving it their all every night. You know, we made so many mistakes in our first year, but we just gained momentum on the way through because our, our guests kind of watched us go and watched us grow. And it was, uh, it was entertaining for them. Of course, they mm. wanted a good experience while they're there, though. Yeah, I think uh, it's sort of what I would sort of say, though, the avant-garde approach, and it can work, and, of course, the energy of people can make a bar work, but I do think that I've witnessed so many people go in and open a place and maybe not be 100% prepared. And the worst thing to see is then that they start losing what they're good at as well. And uh, an advisory tone, I always believe, is um doesn't matter what stage you're going at. If you are going into a business, I think you need to be able to not only understand a P&L report, but actually write it. I've seen so many people who haven't really understood how all those lines add up. Uh, and then suddenly they, they haven't set themselves up for success. And the stress means that their personality changes. Uh, that might mean that they lose their leadership. It might mean they lose the thrill with the guests, might mean they lose their energy. And of course, yours, your story of Pearl is a great story. And I remember going in there as you were building it, you could see your guy's energy. There was no way you were going to fail. Um, but at the same time, I've seen other people in similar situations where I thought the same. And then weeks later, months later, the stress is just wearing them down. They become a prisoner to their business. Um, and they probably at the early stages haven't really looked at what are all the contributing factors that are going to be needed to make that business work so they can enjoy it. Mm. It's The thing is, it's one of those things like owning a bar is, is kind of seated as, as, the, as the pinnacle of your, of your career. It's that major kind of rite of passage, that, that, that big step that a lot of bartenders want to one day take. Um, but I just think that so many people, and me included, go into it with kind of rose-tinted glasses, you know, imagining this, you know, tending bar one evening, you know, your regulars come in, you chat, and it's just this wonderful dynamic that is effortless, and yet there's so much that goes on behind the scenes in order to keep a business ticking along nicely. And... Um, it, you, you know, you're just not prepared for it, I don't think. Yeah, there's almost a lack of transparency. People don't really reveal what's going on with the books and uh, the businesses. And people often don't realise actually how hard it is to make an independent bar profitable. Mm. Sean, what do you think are like the main things that you see where, when the business is failing? What's the, what's the shortcomings that cause that to happen, the most common things? It's funny, when you, when you look at uh, the lists that get produced online, like the top 10 reasons that bars fail, um, the, the reason I see um, more often than not isn't even listed in the top 10. And, and what it is, you know, if you think about um, a guest coming in to get um, food and drink, you know, they expect it to be good. If you've got a commercial kitchen and, and bartenders behind the bar, you know, you've got to get that right. The fit out's got to be appealing to them. The music, all of that sort of stuff is table stakes. But what determines whether a guest is going to come back or not is how they feel while they're there and the connection that's made between them and the staff and them and other guests in the, in the business. And you take a lot of bar and restaurant operators that, that open and one of the reasons they got into the business is that they're really good at that. But teaching hospitality is, is actually very difficult to do. Um, venues that do it and do it well and, and systematize it can expand. Uh, those that don't can't, and they, they really can't figure out why. But, you know, especially in today's uh, business dynamic where an unhappy guest is going to go and punish you uh, within a matter of minutes when they leave with social media, um, that's why I see a lot of these businesses going down. They just haven't considered how to teach the influx of staff, how to uh, connect, and they have too much turnover with their staff. Okay, so what are the main factors we need to consider when it comes to giving that guest a good experience, that ticking that box that are going to keep guests coming back, keep them happy, make them happy to spend money in your venue, keep them loyal? This is one of the, the uh, areas of, of focus of my business, one of the eight disciplines that we work with clients with. And 
you know, the, the complexity of it is, is that, you know, what might be um, the the perfect formula at Pearl, what those guests are looking for might be something very different than one of your other venues, right? So it's even understanding that if you have a business that has three primary constituencies, you've got to understand what it is that they value. You know, I know as a bartender, um, when I had eight properties in Sydney, I still loved to bartend. I'm in my building today. I've got three bars in this building because I love to bartend. But I, even myself, I had one property I didn't like to work at. Mm. Right? Like I just didn't like the clientele. I hate to say that. I just didn't. Just a, like, and, a, like and a least favorite child, basically. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. And where you, where you go there and it, and it just robs your energy every minute that you're there mm. and you have a hard time being nice to people. Mm. Right. So there's a formula to really understanding who it is that we're serving. And, and again, every business has got multiple constituencies inside of the bar academy. We have a program called remarkable by design. And the idea of the program is that staff uh, can not only learn through the program, but that they could teach each other as they, uh, they induct new staff into the business. So it's a, li- it's a little bit like having a kind of mission statement for your guests, really. It's like, what is it you're offering to them? Why do they want to come here and how are you going to do it? Yeah, and, and that, when you look at it, like we started the very the very basic, where you could have a, an individual who comes in on Tuesday who's in one frame of mind. What's going to please him on Tuesday is going to be different than what's going to please him on Wednesday. And because he comes in on Tuesday and he's got this hard exterior, he's he's frustrated. You can see he's got something going on. He wants to plug in and get on the Internet and get his work done. And then when he comes in on Wednesday, he wants to be recognized as a regular. He's got colleagues from work. He, he wants to talk. He wants to embrace. He's more like a sponge on that day. Even starting at the basic, like what is a human being in front of you, that human to human connection and read them and then look at the protocol for the business. And how do we go to, you know, what's next? If they value options, right? They're, they're coming here because the menu is always changing and, but they still want it to be easy, right? So how do we make it easy? How do we use the tools around us to do that? And how do we recognize the time that we have, the difference between peak and off peak? In peak, we might have 30 seconds with them and an off peak we can spend two minutes with them so there's a there's a formula for this like a game plan that we lay out and it's never executed you know in a perfect sense mm-hmm. but we find that when you take young people in the industry and, and kind of give them a cheat sheet on how to deliver on on the needs and desires of the guest mm-hmm. um, it really advances them uh, about a year's worth of experience in, in three months and do you establish those needs and desires purely through assessing the type of guests that you get in at any given time, you know, making notes, analyzing who it is, what they want, and then creating this formula based on these different occasions. Yeah, so three primary sources. One is management. They're there, they're watching. They see what upsets people and, and what delights them. Um, secondly is experienced staff. You know, you ask a bartender who's worked that bar for two years how to play this game to win, and he or she is going to tell you really quickly. Mm. And then thirdly is doing some very simple um, guest surveys and you do that and they will tell you in their language um, how this works and why it works mm-hmm. and, and where you are going to, to, to uh, step across the line and have them um, go elsewhere with their business. Mm-hmm. And you put that together and give it to somebody new. I wish that was offered to me when I was a bartender because I've made so many mistakes and you just get a really good foundation in, in, in what it takes to be successful in this business in the business of relationships. And that's what I believe the bar business is all about. Do you think there's ever an occasion, though, when the guest doesn't actually know what they want? Or maybe they're not, they've not yet been introduced to something that they will want in the future because you've got something new and innovative to offer them. And so actually surveying them won't necessarily give you a true picture of what you need to deliver. Yeah, we, we take a, a kind of... Uh, a standard, you know, of, of common courtesy and, and of, um, you know, what, what we believe is, is great hospitality. And then that might make up 60% of the, of the information that we need. And then we'll plug in the other 30 or 40% from those three sources. Got you. So Declan, thinking about the Savoy, because I kind of view that as quite a unique space. You've got two bars there, obviously, Beaufort Bar and the American Bar. But being a hotel bar, one would assume that your clientele is quite transient um and you don't perhaps have that many regulars although you probably do have like a-list movie star regulars that are constantly propping out the bar and playing piano after hours and all that kind of stuff don't you yeah we do yeah (laughs) (laughs) but so how do you i mean there's gonna be a lot of transient guests or a lot of hotel guests coming through and a lot of tourists coming through as well i expect so 
How do you approach that in the context of the Savoy in, in terms of managing customer experience, knowing that it might be you don't see these people again for a year or even ever? Yeah, well, like as an example, we are a destination place for once in a lifetime experiences. And you do get every single day people who are coming because they potentially have saved up for this special moment and they might not have an intention of returning. The goal is obviously the once in a lifetime experience, you you hit it that well that they have to come back. Um, but it's, I think going back to what Sean had said, it's, it, it is, it's, you've got to simplify the approach and it is all about two things. It's about the team and the guests and, uh, the team are there really to to listen to the guests, to engage the guests, to enjoy their time with the guests. And people are generally um, a little bit simpler than, than we can sometimes make them. And just simply eye contact, engaging, listening to people, that's half of the experience. People mm. always say to me, oh, what do you do differently that really makes it so special? You just get to know them. My, my first restaurant was uh, average in pricing, right? It wasn't anything special. And um, we got a letter one day from a gentleman who said that in our third year, and he said this was his third and final time he was going to visit us. He said, I come to Sydney. He's a farmer. He comes to Sydney once a year for meetings with the bank. And uh, the first time he had um, lunch with us, he said, you know, I go somewhere different every year. And I decided to come back a second time. And on the third time he came back, he brought a guest with him. She ordered a bunch of wine and, and a whole bunch of stuff that he didn't expect. And it was uh, around $98, and he put $100 in there. When we received the letter, there's a $20 bill in there. And he said he was mistreated by my staff on the way out. Like just not, you know, they, they looked a $2 tip and kind of didn't take care of him, didn't see him to the door. And we kept it. In fact, we put it up at all my restaurants and said, like, never forget, like the person you're serving, this might be their only time out that they're, they're eating this year. Right. And, and treat them that way. Hmm. And if someone doesn't tip you, maybe they don't have the money to do that. This guy just didn't have the cash on him. He was expected or sorry, he was surprised by the cost of the of the meal, given what his friend had ordered. Um, but it's, it's so true that if you have your staff in that mindset that tonight's the night that this is someone's special evening, birthday, only time they're going to eat out this quarter, whatever it might be, we start to treat people differently. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that probably that's a a wrong assumption I make about the American bar. I go in there and I think, well, everyone in here is absolutely loaded because, let's be honest, the drinks are, you know, above the average price, mm -hmm. shall we say. Yep. Of course, they're worth it, every penny. Um, and we're going to prove that in a minute because you're going to make a martini, aren't you? That's right, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Sean, it's going to be difficult for you to taste that, but I will taste for you. <laughs> um, yeah, it's an assumption that I make that everyone there has got loads and loads of money, but of course there will be people there who, you know have saved up to come and visit the American bar or the Beaufort bar knowing that it's a once-in-a-lifetime experience. I had a guest recently, um, and she was a relatively uh, lady, a senior-yeared lady, and I was just chatting to her, and I've got a northern accent. She had a northern accent, so that was my uh, breaking the ice with her, and she was with her daughter and a friend, and they were going for afternoon tea. They were there a little bit early, um, so they were just having one drink in the bar. They couldn't really afford the drinks, uh, and they made that quite clear, um, but they said they just needed a space before they go for afternoon tea. They've saved up for afternoon tea. So anyway, I had them in the bar and um, was having a bit of a chat with them. And then she revealed to me, she said, the reason I'm here is my husband. He, we were once walking 40 years ago along Embankment. He, we pointed at the Savoy and he said, one day I'll take you there. Um, and unfortunately, he'd passed away that year and they, he'd never managed to take her there. So um, the reason she was there was because of that sentiment from her husband. Now, straight away, and even as I think it, you know, you feel a, a bit emotional, but straight away you think, well, what a huge responsibility you have there at this moment with this guest. And um, she had mentioned, of course, walking along embankment. So what I then did is I gave her a bit of a tour of the hotel, brought her over to the window um, where... They will have walked along at the restaurant, uh, kind of interrupting some people while they're dining. But, you know, you've just got to do the right thing by the guest at that time um, to make it special for her. Brought her back down. Um, I didn't charge her for the drinks that they had in the bar. They went and had afternoon tea. Most likely I'll never see that lady again, but that's exactly why we're there. And when you have those sort of moments, uh, it's not all about business and uh, yeah. you can have a real impact on the lives. Mm. I suppose that's one of the unique things about the Savoy. Like... For, for all the bars I operate, I'm sure the bars that you operate as well, Sean, you know, the intention is to make an experience 
as memorable as possible, but we realize there's probably a limit to that, right? It's unlikely someone's going to be talking about their bar experience for the rest of their lives, you know, on a normal Wednesday night. Perhaps they will, perhaps something incredible happens, but there's a certain expectation with the Savoy that that should be something that they really do remember for the rest of their lives if they are one of these guests that, you know, is coming in as, as a, on a very special occasion. Yeah, and that's uh, there's, that's where the fine line is as well. Um, and there are so many little catalysts that could potentially mean it doesn't happen like that. And uh, uh, if that situation happens as well, whereby we get some feedback, then that's great. Um, first of all, we have to listen to it. We certainly um, never um, sort of shut the door to that. And then the fact that you've got that moment where they're giving you some feedback means also you've got that opportunity to turn it back around as well because... People do arrive with very, very high expectations, and thus it's a fine line sometimes with regards to the service. Mm. And what, where do you think, like, the kind of danger spots where you might fall down in terms of their expectation? What, where is it because the place is too busy, they can't get a seat? Is that a common complaint? Or? Yeah, that's it. It's a busy place on a Saturday. We're an all seated venue, but we'll be doing up to 800 covers. Um, and at times, the waiting list gets to about an hour. Um, and the key really is that sometimes even as a host they can be stood on the door uh, and they can be almost dreading I suppose saying the guest that it's going to be an hour but you still have to be grateful that that guest has arrived and uh, you have to try and make the the time as engaging as possible while they're waiting to get in the bar. Is that just the American bar or Bowfoot bar as well? Bowfoot bar would be a different beast it would have um, probably less interaction with non-residents it's certainly uh, a bit more of a higher hotel resident guest mix uh, and as such, you would less likely have the same sort of cues. Um, and there's probably a little bit more time at the table there, uh, a bit more of an elevated experience. Do you actively direct hotel guests towards the Beaufort bar then? That is really, you have to, operating a business, you have to know exactly what you are. Uh, and ultimately, yes, when we look at the American bar, it's a, it is a bar within a hotel. So it is a hotel bar, but it's certainly a bar that also appeals to a non-resident guest and the product mix also reflects that. With the Beaufort bar, we have a more elaborated food offering, a more elaborated champagne offering. Our whiskey selection is very well sought out as well as our mixed drinks. Um, and as such, it is more of that elevated hotel bar experience. Mm. And I mean, just talking about expectation again, kind of going back to that, how do you ever sort of take a step back and think like what, you know, this, this kind of responsibility that's sitting on my shoulders of making sure that we deliver as promised with this legendary bar, like as close to sort of holy ground as we have in our industry? Do you, does it ever kind of feel too much like, whoa, how are we going to how are we going to deliver what we need to deliver tonight, tomorrow night, every single night? Um, I wouldn't say it ever feels too much, but you certainly, when you start working there, it's got a, a very special way of getting into your blood. Uh, it becomes a real part of you. My two girls have both been born whilst I've been working there, and they are there as regular as they can be. It's a big part of their lives. So it has a huge impact. You do get a great connection with it. Um, I would never say, though, it feels too much because it's just a place I love, and I love going there. Uh, I enjoy my days. Uh, I enjoy the guests I meet. And as such, you've just got to, you've just got to keep on smiling, really. If you're not smiling, no one else will. You've been to the American Bar, I'm assuming, Sean. I have, yeah, I love it. Yeah, me too. It's good to hear. Thanks, guys. <laughs> You're listening to Diageo Bar Academy's podcast, Bar Chat. Still to come. We had 20 or 30 quality applications for every vacancy. Everything changes when you change and start to focus on different things. You know, and when I started doing that, I never again said, <laughs> it's hard to find good staff. Guys, what considerations or advice would you offer to a bar or restaurant that um, has quite a seasonal trade and I'm kind of asking this from um, for very selfish reasons because I have a restaurant that is extremely seasonal to the point where we actually close it for about four and a half months of the year in the winter it's right on the coast and in Cornwall does a storming trade in the summer in August it takes more money than the rest of all the months put together but it's a challenge to operate for that reason because you have to let staff go and then rehire every single year hope that they're going to come back try and incentivize them to come back what what advice and I guess specifically I'm asking you Sean would you offer me 
to, to make my life easier. Yeah. So we, we have a lot of clients uh, with seasonal businesses and uh, no doubt they're tough. Um, the ones that perform the best, however, um, you know, are, are ones that, that can get a core group of staff back year after year. And what I've learned from working with those businesses and watching them is that, you know, it's in the hiring process, it's getting the right people for the business and not you know, necessarily the best. I don't mean that the people you're hiring aren't great, but we're someone who you'd really like to put in, but you know, they're only going to be there for a year. So if you have a business that, that you know, makes uh, most of its money for the year in 90 days, um, you don't want, you can't afford to have that business spending 60 or 120 days getting up to speed. Mm. Right, so that institutional knowledge becomes really, really important, and then the framework, the schematic on on the um, HR programming, is of course very different than than a regular business that just trades continually, and you have a lot of tribal knowledge in place. So the jump start that these businesses have prior to opening day is is of course you know akin to an opening night every year. I feel it's more important in a seasonal business to have really strong um, hands-on leadership. You know, if you've got great people in the trenches, um, a lot of young kids say they learn really quickly what to do from watching people that are excellent at doing it and have, have experience at dealing with your guests in that property. So I think that's one of the biggest shortcuts to having a business run, uh, run successfully in a seasonal configuration. What we've learned over the last five years with it is that we have we've 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 had to identify the people that we really want to keep around and keep them part of it and actually as a result of that we've issued shares to them as well um and 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 put them on salaries so that they're paid all year round even though we're closed for yeah. a third of the year and it's a scary um thing to embark upon because you're like oh my god not only are we paying rent and rates and you know still ticking along electricity bills and all this sort of stuff through the winter but now i've got the burden of three or four salaries as well when we're not trading for this entire period but it works itself out uh, in the end you know as long as you built up as long, we found as long as we built up enough of a cash reserve to sustain it for the first year once we got through that first year of the winter season you start and you hit the ground running again the next year and we've never looked back and our general manager has been with us for four or five years now and uh, the other two salary staff for a few years too and they don't show any signs of, of wanting to, to to run off just yet. In fact, the opposite is true. They're, they're, they're wanting to become more bigger, bigger parts of the business um, and really taking ownership of it, which is exactly what you want, right? Yeah, well, you've got it. That's that's the main the main driver. And, and having people on, on salary 12 months a year, yeah, a risk in that. But if it's factoring the cost of, of doing business and getting those those folks back with experience, it's, it's worth it. So we talked a little bit about guest experience um, and – you know, I'm sure we, we I'm, I know, Sean, you certainly go on and on for hours about this because it's exactly your job. Um, but let's talk a little bit about profits and profitability as well, because I think it, to some people, these two things may seem at odds with one another. This idea that, you know, you've got to somehow manage to get all the books balanced and make loads of money and all the profits and everything. And yet at the same time, you're making sure your prices aren't too high. So how do we factor profitability into it and still maintain that high standard of service? When you look at the bar business, and, and as I said, we've seen the books on, on thousands of businesses. So um, short-term profits in the, in the bar business you know, could be made by cutting corners and, and reduction. Um, Long-term profits, though, are made from a constant investment in, in both staff and then into guests. And so I, I've always seen them as, you know, something that rises simultaneously. Your, your profits continue to go up. When you have customers that are getting you new customers, um, that is an, that's a wonderful uh, cycle for business. And the way that we do that, again, it goes back to that bartender that you're, you're hiring into your business. It's making sure that, that he or she really understands how you do make money in the bar business. And, and what their responsibility is in that, other than you know producing these beautiful drinks and being friendly in the moment, um, you know we talk to to staff about um, their responsibility and, and, the, and the primary objective um, for us really is, and it was in, in my bars uh, certainly, really was uh, pleasing somebody. And, and regardless of what country you're in, when people are happy, uh, maybe except for for England, they smile. British <laughs> <laughs> Every other country that I work in, though, people 
you know, they generally smile. But then in addition to that, you know, we, we teach everyone that we work with how to be a retailer, right? How to sell mm -hmm. and sell with dignity. Um, and being a retailer doesn't mean it's all about upselling and pushing things on people. It's about presenting great options for people that it's going to make their experience right for them. And, and yes, often that is buying more than they otherwise would have bought because they didn't know what to buy. They didn't know what was different or what was worth spending their time or money on. And then thirdly, um, when you have your entire team involved in marketing and, and, you know, a good reason to go back to a lot of bars, um, in fact, you know, it's been years um, since I've been at the Savoy, but a good reason to go back to the Savoy that night was the bartender that served us. Mm. There's a lot of beautiful rooms in London, but man, the staff were just incredible there. Um, so it's making sure that you constantly find a reason to, to invite somebody back into the business. And if you're doing those three things as a bartender and as a host and anybody who interacts with guests, you know, you're going to increase the, the, the guest retention and you're also going to drive profits up. Do you think there's a place, I mean, we don't see this that much over here. Um, I don't know if it's different in the States or anywhere else for like loyalty card type schemes. I mean, you see it a lot in coffee shops, right? You know, get 10 stamps, get your next one free. I'm not necessarily saying that's the exact mechanic that would work in a cocktail bar, get 10 martinis, get an 11th one free, but something uh, physical that helps him keeping people coming back to your bar or perhaps recommending other people, their friends to come in and then try the place out. Well, for us, and, and we teach this now with our clients, but I, you know, I, I practice this myself with, with eight venues. Um, I was told by a mentor of mine uh, that I work for in London. Um, he said to me, if you have 250 raving fans, 250 people that are advocates for your business that literally drag people in there. They're colleagues. You got to see this. You've got to meet these people. You've got to do that. He said, you've got something special, right? You, there's a multiplying effect with that. Mm. And what we did with each property was to create uh, a list of 250 to 350, because not everyone's going to be able to make it. And you guys know as bar owners and bar operators that you get a lot, there's a lot of change in the industry and you get a lot of free stuff. People want you to buy new things. So for example, um, once a quarter, we'd have a night where we're trying out new products and we'd have not only the new product we were considering, but the thing we were looking at taking off the menu. And when you start asking your customers to, to be involved in those sorts of decisions or music changes, you know, we'd bring in DJs and say, Hey, we're looking at doing this on a, on a Wednesday night or a new cocktail list that comes in. Um, so when we, when you wine list, you know, everyone loves to be invited for, for a wine night coupled with some food and so forth. So yeah, that's a sort of loyalty we build and people wanted on that list. They were like considered advisors to, to the restaurant. We were asking for their advice. They filled out quick cards and information. It's like, really the house of, it. like the House of Representatives kind of situation. That's right, yeah, <laughs> that's right. And I suppose, it, I mean, I know as well, like when you get a spirits brand that kind of brings you into their fold as a bartender or bar operator and says, oh, come to our distillery, try this blend we've created it makes you feel part of that family. It endears you to them. It makes you a loyal customer. And you then feel kind of like a traitor if you kind of, you know, right. use someone else's product. So that's a, yeah, that's an interesting thing to do. Identifying those top 250 customers and then saying, look, you're part of the family now. You get to help us make decisions. Um, come on in you know, and, and, and help us shape this place for, for the better for everyone. I think to your original point as well, there's probably more of an opportunity for bars to do loyalty programs, particularly with the way technology is now. No hotel would survive without a loyalty program. It's a really important part of our business. It's a huge percentage of, of what we do will be part of our loyalty programs. And these days as well, um, it's a redeeming point. So X pounds spent gives a return in points mm. and they don't even have to bring out a card, a code or anything. Their debit or credit card is linked to it. So it's just automatic. So every time they use that credit or debit card, they increase the points and they can redeem their points. It might be. All oh, right. They... So when they use that card. Yep. In your, in your, we, in we your... don't even need to know that they're a loyalty card member, right? Because it's just dialing straight into their credit card oh. or that. So they, they use their card in your bar, their debit card, and that's linked to yep. their loyalty yep. number. And so they're just like cashing in points yep. that they can then use to they could redeem it somehow, rooms yeah. or yeah, exactly in the bar as well, cocktails, yep. food, all yeah, that sort yeah. of stuff. So, some really fantastic advice here. 
do you, do you think that everything we're saying here is kind of applicable globally or I mean I know we've said already that you know each bar is different and you need to kind of assess the needs of each customer but do you think that most of these sort of themes we can just you can be applied to any kind of hospitality business around the world or is there Sean especially this for you since you operate in so many different countries do you think there's nuance or even quite dramatic differences between different markets everything we've talked about today and in fact most everything that i that i deal with uh is applicable globally because I, I deal primarily in, in in business fundamentals and and teaching people how to do um something that's considered quite ordinary at an extraordinary level um you know and and just to go back to the example of, of doing something and creating this core tribe of of, of regular customers who can really propel your business forward, people want to do that. And I said, well, that's, that's not common, right? So you need to do something that's uncommon for them uh, in order to get them to, to do something for you. So I gave the example of like, we get all these products that people want us to try and let them try it. It's this cool night out for them. But we coupled that. I was for, and I still am uh, involved with entrepreneurs organization and I was the education chairman. So when I would get a, a guest uh, out to speak to our members, um, a room full of entrepreneurs, I'd ask that guest well in advance if they would come back on the same night and speak to my my uh, restaurant, this core group of people. And the, the topic could range from business to real estate to parenting to uh, addiction, whatever it is. And so the topic goes up. You know, people, if it's not for them, they, they, don't, they don't come along. The people that do, do. And you've suddenly created like a really unique tribe. Uh, of people. And I tell you, like, it was one of the biggest secrets of my success that these folks were behind me and were there to advise me on anything. It was a wonderful thing to have in place. So everything that, that we do now is that way. You know, if we're talking about how to, um, you know, attract staff to your business in a different way and then how to onboard them and then how to keep them, you've got to look at, again, wanting extraordinary results. Like, what are you willing to do and, and I tell you, most of the things that, that you will do for your staff are low cost or no cost, but they take your time and they, and they, you know, that's what your team wants from you. And I'd rather be doing that. You know, when I had a few hundred staff in the restaurant business, I'd rather be face to face with my staff than buried in my books in the back. So I had a bookkeeper paid for that, bought my time back over here. So yeah, it does work mm. in every country. I'm sort of getting from you that it's, it's really a case as an operator that you take care of your staff and they will then take care of your customers, right? So it's focusing on the people that are focusing on the people that matter, right? Yeah. You know, I, I was asked a question when I was working in London. I, I, went, uh, I went to a funeral of, of the, the gentleman that gave me the job at the, uh, at the restaurant. And uh, I was asked a question before I left to get on the flight by my, my boss in London. And um, because I, I told him through tears, you know, what this, what this gentleman had done for me. Um, and he said to me, he said, Sean, how do you think you will be remembered by somebody who was in your care for a couple of years, 10 years from now? And you know what? At that time in my life, the answer wasn't, wasn't very appealing, right? Like I wasn't doing enough to um, develop them and to challenge them and to, and to bring them along. And it, it changed everything for me. You know, and when I started doing that, um, we had, I never again said, <laughs> it's hard to find good staff, we had 20 or 30 quality applications for every vacancy in an organization of over 300 people. Everything changes when you change and start to focus on different things. Mm. Do, you, do you find, though, like let's say you're operating a number of venues, say five plus, that it's difficult to split your time between all of these places, be present in every single one? I mean, obviously, you need to delegate, but how do you still retain – how do you still – act as that personality, that person who's looking out for the interests of those teams or those managers and be there when you've got to split yourself between so many different locations? Yeah, two two things, because this is one of the things that really ran me down and I didn't do as well uh, in the beginning as I, as I did towards the end. Uh, but two major things is, is one is I started hiring uh, leaders and, and at the risk of sounding modest that were better than me, mm -hmm. you know, just human beings that had more experience um, they were better teachers. And so that took a lot of burden off of me. You know, sure, people still want to be around the founder and, and everything else. But uh, so that was one. And that, and that costs money. You know, uh, I went from in, in some regards, you get what you pay for. 
right? Like you can't expect someone who's earning $80,000 to leave the organization and work for you for 50. Their cost of living is already established. So I suddenly had to pay more, but I got a lot better people and things got better. But then secondly, I changed the operating system. And I did this through having a, a gray-haired board who said to me, you need to upgrade your operating system. And some of the changes um, were that I started running a monthly um, open house meeting about the business. Anyone could come. We had our, our, our financials, P&L, balance sheet, um, you know, test on plan. Like we, we opened everything up and you could ask me anything, right? So you had access to me every month. We started running um, quarterly retreats where we would go off site for a day or two and take a group of people. And we had a lot of committees um, that would develop the businesses. And they were a mix of front of house staff, back of house, dishwasher, host, and so forth. If you worked on a committee, you could apply to go on these retreats to do that sort of thing. And I started, I read a book called The Walton Way. And I thought, man, how did this guy Walton develop this big business over here in the States? And he, they talked about him being so connected to his staff. He would walk into his stores, often walk right past the management team, and uh, flip over a milk crate in the back and say to the staff, hey, let's chat. What do I need to know? What do you want me to know? What do you need fixed around here? And I started doing a lot of that, having a lot of coffees with people outside of the management team. And I just felt a lot more connected and, and them to me. One of the things I've personally struggled with over the years, uh, at most, for the most of the last six or seven years, I've had about five different venues. Some have closed or sold, I've opened new ones since. But I've always found that the, it's the venue that's struggling that sucks away all of my time and yeah. all of my energy and the other ones which are doing okay but probably could do better just don't get the attention that they need in order to make them you know really great um functioning venues how do you go about managing time so that you're not devoting all of it to one thing that perhaps is never going to work well you're you're well ahead of the curve in the fact that you recognize it because a lot of people don't they they think that you know, of my 40-hour week, which turns into 80, but that's my discretionary time, and I'm putting it into something that matters to me. And, you know, we remind our – we coach a lot of uh, bar and restaurant operators, and and uh, we remind them that, you know, you're choosing to do that over putting time into your, your personal health or your children or your community, whatever it is. Um, we, we work with our clients to develop criteria, uh, and that criteria for each property they have, of course um, – profitability, but we're also looking at lifespan or arc of that business and making sure that it is what you think it is. Um, thirdly, we're looking at, at energy that it takes. Fourthly, we're looking at time. And when you start to rate your energy on a property, and really there's only two positions, you know, you, we have <laughs> yeah. a scale of five, but it's, it's giving you energy or it's robbing your energy. Yeah. And if it's robbing your energy, it's not making the money that it should be making. It's taking a lot more time. Then you open up a decision tree to say, okay, what are we going to do? And, and what's a time frame that this thing needs to turn around in all these, all these areas? And if you don't, um, you know, you've done it. You're shut down. You've reopened. Like, you know, we famously in, here in the States, um, Jack McGarry is one of the guys in our coaching program. He's just shut down Blacktail. Mm -hmm. and he's getting ready to open up a, a second dead rabbit. Mm -hmm. uh, is that a failure? Absolutely not. Mm -hmm. You know, probably did well. It's just not the right property for them right now, and it's time for him to channel his efforts into something that makes a lot more sense for him. Yeah, sure. A lot of what we talked about, is, I mean, I love some of the ideas and everything, and but I reckon we've probably got people listening thinking, look, I'm struggling as it is. I don't have any money or budget to really, you know, do any sort of like staff retreats or to sort of energize my team in that way. So maybe, Declan, start with you. What advice would you say... Or would you give to an operator or even a bar manager that they can activate tomorrow um, that might, you know, really start to take the first steps towards changing a business and turning it around and, you know, improving the working environment for their team, improving guest experience and making more money? And I think it's kind of similarly to Sean. The, the thing is, there's only so much you can do yourself and it's about your people uh, and I think the first step is, of course, talking to your people, getting to know your people and seeing what they think. Maybe they've got the suggestions and giving them the power and the empowerment. I remember when I was sort of managing a multiple number of bars, the key for me was having those the, those key bar managers in each place, having that direct relationship with them, that constant sort of 
communication channel, but then also just with the team that are on the floor, um, often they're going to come up with the best ideas. Uh, and if it's if it is dragging the energy out of you, it is a decision making process of whether you continue. What do you change? Uh, the worst thing you can do is just let it just carrying on trundling along. Uh, change is important, and you have to look at yourself and not be too proud. Yeah. You, you might want it to be a cocktail bar, but the reality is you might not have that market and it might be that putting draft beer in is the key thing that changes it. It sounds like you, you're reading my emails. <laughs> <laughs> We've just done that at one of my venues. Um, we just opened a Black Rock in Bristol, which Black Rock's very much a whiskey bar concept, as you know. Um, but Bristol's a beer city. Yeah. Um, we knew that from the outset. We knew the beer was going to need to be a bigger part of the offering. But uh, what are we, three months in, four months in? and we've realized we need to make it an even bigger part of our offering. It's a bit of advice I give to anyone opening a bar in this country is uh, first things first, just put some draft beer in there to start with because, you know, it, the the British drinking culture of draft beer, we're going back to sort of Roman days. It's yeah. it's a part of the DNA. And I remember speaking to someone once and they said, oh, well, we just don't want that crowd in. Well, then just put a different beer on that might not be, be what they drink in the nag's head. Um, but the chances are if they drink your premium premium craft beer in a schooner, it might be a little bit more money. They then may be softened into your concept and they might try your whiskey. <laughs> it is the ultimate icebreaker beer, really, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, it doesn't matter where you are. I'm, you know, I've drunk a beer in the, in the American bar before and I know for well I should be drinking white ladies and, and martinis and that sort of thing. Speaking of which, speaking of icebreaking and of martinis, yeah. I am really good at this segue thing, by the way. Uh, you're you're going to make us a martini, right? Yeah. So talk to us a little bit about the recipe you're using here, because I know you're using Tanqueray 10 as the gin. It is just my favorite uh, martini gin, hands down, and one of my favorite gin and tonic gins as well. It, I mean, what what do you think it is about Tanqueray 10 that makes... We were talking about it before um, we started recording. Tanqueray, yeah, Tanqueray 10 has got a... It, there's a wonderful citrus note to it. Um, I think also texturally as well. Um, I tend to feel it just really works in a martini. Um, it almost has... Martini's a drink I, I drink quite a lot. Uh, I do love it. What I, I think with uh, Tanqueray 10, let's not get too technical, it's got almost a zing to it as a martini. Mm. And... You can hear this, but you can't see it. Um, but Declan, um, not content with using the ice that we have in the studio, we're, we are a recording studio that happens to have ice, um, has brought a massive chunk of crystal clear ice and um, just basically cut it up like a butcher. Um, that sounds like you messed it up, doesn't it? Like you butchered it. He cut it up in a really lovely way using a butcher's cleaver, basically. Um is that how you crack? Do you, do you do a lot of hand-cracked ice in the American bar like that? Yeah, all of our martinis are made with block ice, um, and we always use the, the knife to cut them, yeah. So we let the block ice uh, get nice and warm so it's not going to shatter into loads of different pieces. Um, and then, yeah, we use the knives, um, and it just means that you're just in control of that uh, dilution. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, Tanqueray 10, what else is in there? So we've gone with uh, our own dry vermouth, Savoy dry vermouth. We had Roberto Barva of Cocky Make It For Us really identified that um, we have a lot. Martini's our best-selling drink in the bar, um, and it always has been. We're really proud of that fact. Uh, and when I think of the people who come into the bar drinking martinis, they drink them all around the world. So how can we make that little bit of difference? Let them choose their gin or their vodka, um, and then what we had is a, a very particular style of dry vermouth made for us. Uh, and then we also use our own Savoy Martini bitters uh, made by the team at Bitter Truth. Um, just so that we can really subliminally sell the drink to the guests that they sit down and they might not necessarily say that's a... Uh, that's really different to another martini, but it might just subliminally send a little message. And the next time they have a martini, they maybe remember us. Um, Sean, I can only apologise. Um, I guess you're salivating a little bit. We, we, do you have the thing called a boomerang? That's a big thing in London at the moment, where one bar will send a bottled cocktail to another bar. So let's say I'm drinking in the American bar, and thank you, I'm drinking in the American bar and Declan makes me a martini. Fat chance of that, by the way. Uh, <laughs> I just <yeah. laughs> This is the only time I'm getting a martini off you. Uh, I might say, oh, well, look, I'm just going over to the Connaught now. 
Um, and so what Declan will Never do is... Never heard of it. Yeah. <laughs> Declan will pour a martini into a bottle, seal it with a note, and then I'll take that to the Connaught and give it to the guys there as a little gift. And then the idea is that they would then make something that would be taken onto another bar and the whole thing gets reciprocated and it's like a kind of sharing community thing. Yeah. Yeah, well, I, I learned about it the hard way because a friend of mine who owns a bar here in Annapolis uh, dropped off a bottle one day with cocktails in it. And I thought, wow, that's wonderful. And uh, and then I realized I hadn't heard from him for a couple of months. And I text him. I said, hey, where, where have you been? He goes, you returned my boomerang. I'll stop by. <laughs> <laughs> so it really is, they really do want it back. <laughs> um, delicious martini. Is that two to one ratio? Two to one. Yeah. yeah, that's my preferred martini. Yeah. yeah, I like it reasonably heavy on the view. I, t- I tend to go three to one. And you did garnish with a lemon twist, didn't you? But you discarded. Discarded, yeah. Because yeah. I'm, I'm always cautious about garnish. I'm one of these weird people. I don't normally do garnishes at all. Um, because I worry that the lemon oil just dominates the drink. That's that's lovely what you've, you've done there. Yeah. I'm glad you're enjoying it. Well, you're it. clearly not as out of practice of making drinks as I originally <laughs> thought. Um, thank you. I think we're kind of pretty much wrapping things up there. I've got one more uh, question and then a couple of quickfire questions for you both, which is something we do with every single episode, um, which we'll get to. So uh, one final question. Sean, um, You've given us some amazing information there and, you know, you're a consultant on all this stuff um, with a wealth of more knowledge, I'm sure, um, some of which, of course, some people at some point need to pay for. Um, But I know that you've got some resources on the Diageo Baracano website. Is there anywhere else besides that that you can recommend that people can go for for useful sort of tips, information um, and more elaboration on the stuff that you've been talking about? I've been working with with Diageo for years and so the, the Bar Academy site and the business of bars information up there has a a lot of what we've talked about today. Um, I put together and I'm always asked like, you know, my favorite books or uh, places to grab some great information from. And I think if I had three, um, only three books when I started my career and not just read them, but, but really studied them and applied them, um, man, I would have been so much better off. So the the first one is uh, a book called the ultimate sales machine which the only thing I don't like about the book is a title. It's not, well, it certainly has some sales in it, but it's about most aspects of business by a gentleman named Chad Holmes. That's, that's no longer uh, amazing, amazing guy. Um, so that's the first. The second is a friend of mine wrote a, wrote a book uh, called Double Double by Cameron Harold. And most everything he talks about in there applies to, to a bar or restaurant. And then thirdly, um, one of my business mentors, a gentleman named Bern Harnish, wrote a book called Mastering the Rockefeller Habits. And it's about what J.D. Rockefeller, a guy who committed first half his life to making money, built up the biggest fortune ever known to man on dollar for dollar today, he surpasses Bezos or any of those guys, and the second half of his life to giving it away. Um, so those three books are, uh, are something I'd recommend that anyone uh, looking to to do more business in our industry uh, should should pick up. Fantastic. You got any books that you would recommend, Declan? Yeah, well, um, I read a good book by a guy called Sean Finter. That's a, a good management text. There you go. Um, <laughs> and I actually think in terms of books, obviously Sean's given a, a really good list of um, of texts there, but I think there's a big hole in the market. Um, I think that also bar people can sometimes really struggle with leadership texts. I, I myself struggle with leadership texts in all honesty. Um, I think Danny Meyer um, writes a nice readable uh, version, Setting the Table, uh, and his emphasis on shared ownership, I think, is a a must-read, in all honesty. Uh, Other than that, I think those are the only two books that really jump out to me. Um, I also, I'm going to throw a bit of a a googly. I think it's quite important to read a lot of fiction, um, because I think it's really important to free your mind as well. Uh, Something I try and do now is, when I'm on the train home, is not look at my phone, have the 24 minutes of no digital and read fiction um, just to sort of give myself a bit of a release and it helps with the energy and maybe a bit of the innovation and creativity that you need in conversation at times mm, that's good advice you should also listen to our episode on how to look after yourself in the industry as well where we talk a lot about exercise and well-being meditation and all that good stuff i will Quick fire questions, guys. Um, this, the answers don't have to be quick. They can be as long as you, as you like. Um, what is your desert island cocktail? 
we're drinking it. It's a martini. It's got to be. Um, but it, it, the reality, you asked me cocktail, so it would be a martini. However, the, if I had a desert island drink, it'd be a beer. It'd be a beer. Cool. Sean? My desert island cocktail would be the Tanqueray Negroni. Nice. Uh, so the the opposite question, let's go with you first, Sean. What is the cocktail you'd most like to see buried and never made ever, ever again? Huh. I'm, I'm just not a fan of... Uh really sweet drinks and i know a lot of people are going to like this but there's a lot of tiki drinks that i'm not uh okay not crazy about yeah fair enough uh i suppose i I like to throw googlies and i'd like to see uh more reincarnations and rebirths of uh of the disco culture and fun drinks because i think that um, i like tiki drinks uh tiki drinks and (laughs) drinks like uh, if i want to pick one out a junior june bug for example i think that sometimes people have made drink making quite serious quite brown and stirred and uh it's good to have people uh to just have a bit of fun with the drinks as well uh so instead of killing one i'm bringing them back to life oh okay right this is an interesting twist on the quick fire round right out of all the bars in the world and it could be one that's closed down years ago would you most like to spend an evening in? Uh, easy answer for me. Uh, my favourite bar on the planet is Attaboy in New York. Okay. Um, I love the feel. I, I think where they do what they do really well there is it, it's got a very um, relaxed atmosphere as you walk in. Lighting always perfect. Music great. Uh, such simple things, but so often done badly. Uh, great drinks, wonderful service, uh, and it just it, it always works for me. Yeah, it's a great bar. Uh, Sean, same question to you then. Favorite bar? I had a really special friend's birthday recently, and, and she said, um, you know, she doesn't know the industry that well, so you picked the place where you'd most like to spend the evening. And we went to New York and went to Dead Rabbit and spent time on the main level, and then we spent time upstairs and had drinks, and it's uh, it's never disappointed me. I've yep. been there a, dozen, a couple dozen times. Yeah, I, I particularly like the ground floor there. It's Definitely. great. Um, yeah, especially since the expansion. Oh, well, I, yeah, because there was the fire, right? And then they've expanded up. Right. Yeah, yeah, I've not been yeah. there recently, actually. Um, but, I, yeah, it's, I knew as soon as I walked into that place. It's, I mean, it's it's more prototypically an Irish bar than most of the bars in Ireland. That's the thing. But it also does that without being gimmicky at the same time, and that's, that's the real skill of it, uh, I think. If I could just jump in on Dead Rabbit, I was recently there, and um, I'm good friends with Sean, uh, and he took me to his glass cleaning room. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, <laughs> he, he identifies that the key to the Guinness, um, why it's so good in Ireland, is the only thing that they can really identify is the cleanliness of the glass. So... They clean it once with detergent, then they clean it in a machine without detergent, then they let it dry in the air, and then someone checks that it's clean and it's dry, and then they put it on the bar. And it's that attention to detail there mm. is why that's such a busy business. Well, there's a bar in Ireland, like a pub, small pub, like owner-operated, the guy's like 70 years old. Um, I forget where it is exactly, and they've won the kind of best Guinness in Ireland. It's called Grave Diggers. Is yeah. that it? Yeah. Yeah, John Kavanagh's. That's it. So... He his his kind of golden rule he reckons is that you clean the lines regardless of whether you've been busy or quiet on a very specific schedule and I can't remember whether it's like every four days every five days every week but it doesn't matter if it's been dead he's only served one pint or whether he's sold a thousand pints that those lines get cleaned and as long as he sticks to that schedule allegedly it's the best but I've never been there no I haven't either Sean lives and breathes it though hmm. you know uh, just one other interesting fact Declan because you just walked through the back of house and a lot of people ask you know why can't what they're doing uh what they're doing be replicated you know at that quality and so forth the the average american bar commits uh 80 of its square footage to front of house 20 percent back of house their business is 50 50 wow. yeah that's how much they do in prep and and glass washing and you know yep. the average operator wouldn't be willing to do that yeah, yeah. there's a great message there isn't there well exactly i mean you get the plans for a bar and the first thing you think is right how many tables can i fit in here you know? right. and then yeah. once you think you've maximized that you then kind of think right well now we need to squeeze, squeeze a kind of office and a kitchen and and so on but you're right i mean and that's a brave old move as well on like manhattan real estate hey you know where it's not yeah. cheap um you know you really need to maximize square footage and, and get the revenue in um but yeah. obviously the success of it speaks for itself uh final um question it's a quick fire question is if you were tending a bar one night and you had the most perfect wingman as your bar backstroke 
you know, fellow bartender in all of history. And this could be someone who you respect as a bartender, or it could be a, um, you know, famous person. Who would you choose as your ultimate wing person? Uh, let's go with you first, Declan. My ultimate wing person, um, I would go with a bartender, a female bartender. It would be Pippa. Uh, and it really orientates. Pippa Guy was a bartender who worked with us for three years. She's now gone over to New York to work at Crown Shy. Um, but the reason why I would select her is down to the origins of how we hired her and talent spotting. I was out on a night out in Leeds with Joe Schofield. Um, we were in a Porto, which is one of the best bars on the planet. It's a real party <laughs> bar. Um, and one thing led to another, and we ended up dancing on the bar top with Pippa. And uh, the next day, we were obviously reflecting on the fact that her service made us dance on the bar top with her and that we needed to get her to join our team. And if any bartender can make you dance on a bar top, they're going to make the business successful. So she'd be the one. Uh, go on then, Sean, uh, your ultimate wing person. I love to... Uh to bartend i love to laugh and i love to learn so uh, my ultimate wing person i only bartended with him once and it was at a charity event um when i got back to my hotel that night my face was so sore from laughing or just permanently smiling um and he's a guy that our industry lost not long ago john lamare uh, i'd yeah. love to uh, to live that night again with him yeah excellent choice you're absolutely right um i knew john and it's not very often you spend time frowning around that guy. He was he was, it was a lot yeah. of fun. Yeah, it's been wonderful learning from you both, um, hearing your experiences, and I hope that it's been inspiring for everyone that's been listening as well. So thank you. Yeah, I've enjoyed it. Thank you. I yeah. look forward to the boomerang. <laughs> thank you for tuning in to today's episode of Bar Chat. Visit diageobaracademy.com for access to more podcast episodes and exclusive content. See you next time. <laughs>